Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show uh, today, he did my show in April of 2015, and it's funny, so much has happened since then. And, you know, he was, at the time, working on Mom, and he went on to direct some episodes of Mom, and he's constantly working, and he co-created a show, which... It's it's really good. And I'll just say that because he's on here. It's uh, I've watched all four episodes. Me and my wife, Joanne, we love it. We laugh. The show's bookie. And my guest is Nick Bakai. How you doing, Nick? Uh, I'm good, Steve. 2015, huh? <laughs> wow. It, you know, it, it's crazy because, you know, I know you're a Buffalo Bill fan and I'm an Eagles fan. And at yeah. that time, when I left L.A., the Eagles had never won the Super Bowl. So that's why now I always root for the Bills to win the Super Bowl, because I know what it's like. And we were just in Buffalo this summer visiting friends. And, uh, yeah, I remember that. And then they came back and they won. So I'm rooting for you guys. And I honestly think you're going to get hot now. I think you're going to beat Dallas, and I think you guys are going to do pretty well. If we get there, we're going to be trouble because we're actually playing really well. I mean, that game against your guys, you know, uh, that was not the problem with our season. We played really well that day, and we lost on the road to a great team. But you know, if anything bites us, it's those games we lost to the le- lesser teams we should have owned. Isn't that always the lament? Yeah, Eagles lost to the Jets, so there you go. Yeah, so did so did we. That's exactly what I was thinking about. We we were one of the many people who lost to that young lad in the head in the lover boy headband. Exactly. So. Tell me about, tell me from the beginning about Bookie, because as I said, it's a great show, and I, and Sebastian's great in it. The whole cast yeah. is great, and uh, and it's just, it takes some unexpected turns, and it's dark, and I think some people who think of, you know, because you work with Chocolate Mom, I think people yeah. aren't expecting, like, you don't know what to expect these days, but you know it's on HBO Max, so it's it's got to be darker. But tell me how the show came about. What I mean, and why you chose that topic? Because it's a different. It's an off topic. Well, you know, it's interesting. It was something that was always intriguing to me, and I, I did a segment on Sports Center many years ago that was all about. I was sort of the end. I was the sort of no. I was the OG bad beats guy there. Um, so you know, betting in particular on football has always been a part of my life, and I know that world, and I know some people in it. Always been interesting. It's what's really interesting is I was looking back into ancient development notes and realized that run uh, a bookie area by Billy Crystal's production company a billion years ago, and I was like, look at that, and I didn't even remember it. Uh, but at any rate. Um, this came about when uh, Chuck approached me because he was talking to Sebastian about working up something. And he said, would you want to work on that? And I said, hell yeah, because um, I think Sebastian's you know brilliant and I was a fan to begin with. Um, and as we started talking, you know, we just veered off road. We, we you know, the, I think the start point naturally with the way that Sebastian is as a performer, it's, you know, multicam was the first impulse. And then we just kind of went off road, Steve, and we watched him in the Irishman. He was great in that. And he really held his own with some of the great actors. Um, and, uh, we thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to do something a little crime, crime adjacent. And I pitched the spooky area that I've been playing around with. And we just said, yeah. And we pitched it to Sebastian and it was a big move for him because I think he was expecting us to say, you know, this is going to be a sitcom with a living room and you're going to do your thing. 
he went right with it, which was fantastic. And Chuck and I sat down and just started writing the show, and we had the time of our lives. And, you know, like you say, it's really different for us. So it was the ultimate palate cleanser for what we've spent a lot of our lives writing. And, you know, we had a blast, just a blast writing it. And it really, you know, got a cast of our dreams. We've got everyone we hoped for, and they've been a delight. So this has been a great ride. Now, how, as a writer, how do you, and I know writers were creative, because you've written screenplays, you know, Paul Blart, and you've written for different shows, right? you worked on the Kedensky, um, at the, which is a different kind of show. But as you said, you and Chuck have that, that there's that sitcom, you're in that groove. That's what you've been doing for years, you know, in front mm-hmm. of a live audience, you know, network, you know, it has to be on network TV. You can't go a certain way. 22 minutes, 22 minutes, you know, 11 minutes, 11 minutes, that, that kind of formalization how did you guys sit there and actually sit there and wean yourself off of that kind of that kind of <laughs> method when you're doing bookie where you can do anything because it's it's just going to run it's a great question i will be honest with you steve it wasn't hard for me at all i don't think it's hard for chuck at all either but i'll speak for myself this is what i'd be writing if i didn't have a family to feed you know, it's like, uh, you know, I, uh, what your job as a professional TV writer is, is to, I always say, I'm the best tofu you'll ever eat. You know, you put me on a show, I will understand the style sheet, and I will give you the style needed. You know, I write those mall cop movies. Those aren't even PG. They're P. <laughs> if P, not even. You know, and if you knew me, you'd know I don't live PG. I'm not a, you know, I didn't start my career. I started my career in incredibly edgy and late night stuff. And, you know, um, but, you know, I I can do the job and I've done the job for years, but unfettered um, with, you know, when the shackles are taken off my wrists, this is the show I write. It's not Larry. What, what are we getting the Johnsons for their fucking wedding gift? You know? Um, those were long, quiet moments of the soul for me when I was in the writer's room at 3 a.m. listening to people break those stories, you know, uh, you know, um, so to be honest with you, this was, this was the easy part. The other stuff's hard. Now, as you say, it must be great to sit there when you're writing a script that you can just put fuck, you know, you don't have to worry about them going, oh, you can't put that. So you can just put fuck. I mean, as a writer, you're right. That must give you a, a bit of freedom too. It does. You know, I mean, you can, you know, as long as you're not leaning on it as an easy way out of a moment or an easy way out. I mean, our agenda with this show is still it's a comedy. And I think in terms of streaming comedies, which I do think, you know, look, the great ones are great, but a lot of them are lazy and a lot of them get by with a smile. Um, You know, we made sure we, we still this is comedy first comedy forward, as they would say now. Um, but you know, we, 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 you know, our agenda is still to make people laugh. We're just making them laugh at some much darker things. Well, I know I'm not going to give away, but the, uh, suicide episode was great. And the yeah. thing is, though, yeah. and we, we both come from, you know, the stand up comedy world and the, the generation then I was, I was shocked and I'm sorry, maybe I'm just insensitive, but there was a warning that said this contains, you know, scenes of suicide. And I'm like, yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that, you know, well, right then I know something's going to happen. And then I'm yeah. thinking it's, the bottom line is it's cable. It's not network TV at 
8 p.m. And that, that sort of irritates me. And I guess for you as a writer, what is that like when me you too. think now you you sort of have to watch what you write because you can end up in hot water, even though half the shit that people get pissed off about, there's nothing wrong with. You see more when you watch, you know, these political shows. Oh, my people, goodness. These people are speaking. But what is that like you when you it, see, it, when you hear about you have to, there's going to be a warning. You must be like, that's almost censorship. You know, it's funny, Steve, I hadn't even really processed that because I didn't know that was coming either until I watched it. Um, and then I went, oh, of course, this is the age we live in where it's like, you know, warning, baloney will be eaten on this show and it does contain nitrates. Be careful while you watch this thing. It, it really, it, you're so right. It's also, you know, there's a spoiler alert effect to that, which is a writer I despise. It's like, oh, okay, well, somebody, you know, and that, that's a big moment in our, that's one of my favorite episodes. And it does kind of, it does kind of pull a sheet off a moment in that. If you think about it, you know, hopefully it's still a surprise when it happens. Oh, it surprised me. And it, it, it did surprise good. me. But I know when the scene, when they walked out, I, I knew it was yeah. happening. But then that at the end surprised the shit out of me. I mean, you would like to think the show's called Bookie and you look at the, even just the poster art for this show. Um, you're not, you know, this is not for the tender, you know, and, and I, you know, but I know we have to be, everyone errs on the side of caution. It's so fascinating. I, you know, I mean, suicide has literally touched my life in the most immediate personal ways. And I never would have been, it never would have been problematic for me to watch this episode and go, Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't alerted. You know, I mean, I watch, you know, if you live as long as I have, Pretty much every bad thing can happen to you and has. Um, if I end up seeing it on an episode of TV, um, I don't curl up in the fetal position and suck my thumb. I just kind of go, yep, nope, the show just became a notch more relatable, if anything. So I'm with you 100%, but you know, we, it's not our world anymore, pal. I know. So, so how did, how did you... Uh... How did you get Charlie Sheen involved? I mean, I guess him and... It's just funny, because it was a great scene. And then just the... the oh, okay, you can answer this real quick. They're playing poker. It's Charlie. It's the kid from Two and a Half Men. There's a guy with a hat who looks really familiar, and I couldn't figure out who it was. <laughs> well, um, are you talking about the guys around the table? Yeah, the guys around the table. It's the entire, it's the entire original group from the first scene of Two and a Half Men. Literally to a man, all those guys are at the table, um, you know, so it's it, it's either Don Foster and Eddie Gordetsky who were writers on Two and a Half Men at that time, or the actors who were at that table scene playing poker when Angus was a little boy. Um, and it's a gambling scene and it's kind of a perfect, uh, they still call them Easter eggs, I don't even know. But, uh, you know, the, the Charlie story that is a Chuck and Charlie story. You know, we had written a scene in the first episode because we have a Sebastian playing a bookie here in L.A. where sports betting is still illegal, which is a huge part of our show. Um, you know, an old school bookie is still the way you fly here, um, which is not the case in most of America. But at any rate, we realized, well, this guy would certainly have some celebrity clients and we're fools not to take advantage of that. And we had a cameo scene in the first script forever. And then one day, but it was not Charlie. And then, you know, we just kept placeholding different possibilities. Then one day Chuck came in and said, you know what? I think it should be Charlie Sheen. 
And I was at first really shocked um, for the the obvious reason that there was complete scorched earth after all the Tigers bloody rub with those two. And, And Charlie had been, you know, really, really, really publicly rough on Chuck. And um, I know Chuck enough to know there had been no true rapprochement there. Um, But I knew he was ready. You know, time is amazing. Time does heal wounds. And um, it started, so that was Chuck's call. And after a day or two, I thought about it and I thought, no, that's kind of great because everybody knows Charlie bets on sports. Charlie was infamous for that and we could and you know and also would charlie be willing to have fun playing himself in the context of our world and and could they work it out and they apparently had a really remarkable phone call (laughs) um both sides were really ready to put the darkness behind them um and we were kind of off to the races from there steve and it really you know, uh, there was some mystery to it. You know, we hadn't seen Charlie really do any hard work in a long time. You never know what you're getting. And uh, that first day we had our table read of the first episode, which is, as I have said, a high blood pressure event to begin with. There was this added experience of watching Chuck and Charlie face to face for the first time. And then what Charlie are we getting? Uh, so it was, it was a fascinating day. Um, and, and fortunately, it worked out beautifully on all fronts. They were so thrilled to be reconnected. The fact is, those two guys made amazing, beautiful music together for years. And they were right back to it. And Charlie at the table was, you know, he put on a clinic on This is how you do a table read. Um, he's really good. His chops are there. He's there. It was wonderful. Now, you're the showrunner, right? Me and Chuck. So, so explain to the listeners, what is the showrunner's job? Because, you know, most people I know, but most people watch TV and they'll see yeah. executive producer, co-executive producer, you know, right. assistant producer, teleplay by, story by, you know, screen. <laughs> uh, but so what, what, what is the showrunner's capacity in Bookie or in any show? It's a good distinction because producer is the most liquid term in the world. It can mean anything from somebody who literally does everything to make a show happen to a, a name four clicks down that list who has done nothing. And nobody watching at home would know the difference. Um, but, you know, showrunner is the showrunner is the writer, producer and in television uh, and creator, usually. And in, in television, you know, in film, you know, you always think of it as a medium where the Credit is always a film by Ron Howard, which writers hate because he didn't write it. Um, and, you know, as I always say, if half the cast of Happy Days has Oscars, how hard can directing be? But um, writing's hard. Directing, if you've got a good DP, is um, just, you know, hope you're comfortable in a director's chair and enjoy bossing people around. Um, but showrunners do everything. You know, it's like you have to write it. You have to cast it. You have to also make every decision for every department head. You are Checkpoint Charlie, whether it's sets, wardrobe, <laughs> locations, budget, everything. Um, I have a friend who said show running is like trying to write uh, and shoot and produce a TV show while managing an AMPM store. You know, it's a... <laughs> everything kind of the buck stops with you but it's but that's great because 
that means there is one point of view that is hopefully creating a congealed thing that makes sense and has a vision. Committees, you know, we all know committees don't lead to good things. So you also, you know, I know you got into some directing on uh, Mom. Didn't did something happen? Someone couldn't show up or you directed an episode? What was yeah, that I only directed one episode, but boy, did I have fun. Um, and that was when our director got COVID um, the week uh, of the, the going that weekend heading in. And we had to scramble the jets quickly. And it was an episode that, you know, all that type of TV especially in our system is the the team effort but it was a script that was near and dear to my heart and um yeah so i directed uh, one of my favorite episodes and it turned out really well i could do it like i said the writing was harder than the directing <laughs> it just is i want to talk to you about your your relationship into the sports world you know you've been a sports fan all your life how did you parlay cuz you don't think of someone you did stand up you 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 know yeah. you co-hosted some shows you write, but then you end up doing sports, and you don't think that that's something that's one of those. You don't think about that. You don't think a lot of comics going to do sports like you did. How did you get involved? I know so you've been involved in sports in in ESPN and all these shows for a really long time. Yeah, I, I really don't do much now. Although for about fifteen years, I was super active, particularly ESPN. But I did a lot of sports stuff on Comedy Central. And later I did stuff at the NFL Network. But, you know, Steve, it was one of those things that, you know, um, it, a lot of it was just, you know, a little kismet. You know, it was, I was doing a show on Comedy Central called Sports Monster back when it was low distribution, but it was a parody of Sports Center. And it caught the eye of a bunch of people and it happened to catch the eye of John Walsh at ESPN who was really kind of my godfather there. And one of the biggest fans of that show and also a late-night show that I did with Alan Havey uh, called Night After Night was Keith Olbermann. He was a diehard fan. In fact, we used to do a bit on the show. We had no audience, so we had a thing called The Audience of One. And we had one theater seat roped off. And if you were willing to fly yourself to New York City... And put yourself up. You would be our audience for a show in the studio. And Oberman did it one time. He was our audience of one. Um, so, you know, Keith just, the, uh, you know, to this day, it amazes me. So when they launched ESPN2, which was supposed to be their hip alternative universe ESPN, the deuce as it was called in those days, Oberman was moved over there to be the face of ESPN2, which is so long ago many people don't remember it and i believe that keith whispered in john walsh's ear and said we got to do some things that are a little offbeat and this is a guy you should look at and they looked at tape on what i'd been doing and so i flew to bristol connecticut and i showed them some segments and showed them some ideas and um they said great and i started doing the tale of the tape segments i started doing uh, I mean, they had me at the NFL draft. Steve, I did also, I said a column on ESPN.com. I mean, I did, I was all over ESPN. I was, I've been trying to digitize my old tapes and I've got hours and hours and hours. It's relentless. Um, but I was very lucky. I got through the veil. I got with that lucky guy. There was not, you know, before that, sports comedy was essentially hot foots on like, you know, with, in dugouts and Marv. Albert on Letterman with bloopers, right? 
Um, we were the first sort of, I got a take on this op-ed driven comedy and it worked beautifully and I, I had amazing adventures, but that's how it happened. Um, and I went, you know, and I pretty much, they got me over on the mothership pretty fast. And then I started doing the gambling segment and that really took off. Tell me more about the gambling segment. Well, it was, uh, they said to me, why don't we do a bad beat segment? Started out maybe on the deuce. But it was me on Mondays saying, hey, if you had this team minus six uh, with highlights of the game, here's where the college money disappeared. You know, here's where looking good, looking good. This is great. This is great. Bam. You're done. You're cooked. And it was really popular. They moved it over to SportsCenter. All of a sudden, I'm doing it on Mondays on SportsCenter after an NFL weekend. And it was me against the point spread and boy did people dig that and the nfl hated it but their attitude was we're paying you a billion dollars sit down because this is america relates to this and i was smart enough whenever i did segments on sports center i made sure they were footage driven you know nobody wants to see a guy yakking not during their highlight shows so the, but these things were nutty steve people loved them and then they incorporated my wife robin they all knew her and knew she was cool and they said, why don't we do one one week where you're in so much trouble with your bookie that you're on the lamb and Robin's there reading an open letter <laughs> and has some of the bad beats that drove you to the into hiding. And something something crazy happened. And that became me and her, her the long suffering wife, me the degenerate. And we sort of turned into this sketch and highlight driven thing. And it just, people loved it, man. It went nuts. And we did that for about three years. And it was really popular, but then the league shut it down when their contract was up with all the networks and it was time for deal networks to make deals to carry the games again. We were a deal memo. They said no. You know, which is hilarious now because, you know, now you have like the official betting partner of everything. Oh, it's so annoying. You, you like, know, it's, the you, world we live in now, I'm like, are you kidding me? Because they killed us hard, brother. See, that's amazing because I watched the Eagles post game and they go, if you had, you know, hurts to throw yeah. over this. And, you know, it's funny, back to the betting and also goes back to Bookie, is when you say about Bookie, when I, when I lived in L.A., my friend owned this Italian restaurant in Burbank, and this old guy who knew, who was his father's Bookie used to hang in there all the time. And he'd take, he had like a notebook, you know, like notebook old oh, yeah. school. And me and Look, high school. went to the Palm, the old Palm on Santa Monica Boulevard, you know, which was just a mecca here in Hollywood. Every waiter there made book. There was a guy, Reno, God love him, I hope he's still around, but, you know, it, you, it was a gambling mecca, you know, and it was open, everybody, same deal. Now, with the bookie, it's this season's eight episodes? Yes. Now, now could you have gotten a longer contract? Because it's... You know, you're with Chuck Lorre. You, could you, did you guys, did this LA offered? Or I, I, I would think, you know, you get at least 10 episodes. Because what happens, what happens now to the viewer is you watch a show like The Bookie that you really like. And yeah. you're, you're thrown out two at a time, which I like because I don't want to stream it all at once. But two is good because then you sit there, you have to wait a little bit. But then all of a sudden, you look and you go, shit. <laughs> Eight, the season's done. Wait, we want more. <laughs> I mean, and then sometimes, I mean, so why, I mean, for you, you guys have a proven track record. Couldn't you get 10 or 12 episodes for us? You would think. Um, no, we were, you know, we were, this is what they said. 
you know, they said, look, we'll do eight of them. And we were so into it. Um, we were so jacked up to do this show. We were like, great, let's do it. Let's go. Um, and the other factor, Steve, was, you know, we shot this right up against the strikes. Um, so, you know, we got eight done and we were, and things were over, you know, so eight, you know, was kind of our friend in the context of this bizarre year we're enduring. Um, but yeah, I'm well, believe me, I think we could have done 10 and I would have been thrilled to, um, and going forth, um, we could certainly handle that size of order. Um, and I agree with you. I'm watching them play out in real time now. And I'm realizing, well, we're, you know, we listen, it drops on Thursdays. You and I are talking and it, and we're halfway through the season as we speak. And that's kind of remarkable to me, <laughs> especially coming from the world of 22, 24 episode seasons. Um, but you know, look, the, the fact that this thing got made, I, I have so much gratitude because it's, what I wanted it to be, it looks like I wanted it to look. Um, I, I, I'm very proud of it. I'm, I love my cast to death. Um, you know, I, I, would I, I would do a million of these. I would spend the rest of my life doing this show. That's how much I love it. But I'm also thrilled that I got to do them at all because a lot of times, you know, when you really love something, it's just a passport to heartbreak, <laughs> you know, and then they don't even let you get near a camera with them. So, um, you know, to, to, to look at this with anything but gratitude is a, my, would be my first mistake. Now, you've, you've had an interesting career. You've always worked. What, when did you know you wanted to be? I always said, it's fascinating to say, when did you know you wanted to be in the entertainment world? Because, you know, you're a big sports fan. Now, I was a big sports fan, and I was, mm -hmm. I was like, I wasn't that good at sports. I'll be honest. I, I was okay. You know, like, I was like, I was like a rec basketball player. I wasn't good enough to make the team, but I was good in rec. You know, when we had the, the Cherry Hill rec would play. But when did you know you wanted to get into acting? I mean, were you, was, were you creative as a kid, or, or were, you, were you like me when you were a kid? You wanted to sort of be a sports announcer, but then you lost interest in sports for a little bit, and you came back to it. I was always a very creative kid. Um, I, 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 I was drawn to anything like that, but I also played sports hard. I played football and I played hockey hard and I loved them. But, um, but, you know, my dreams as a younger guy were, you know, delusional sports dreams. I remember a teacher of mine really giving me that look of like, this is an interesting kid, but he's nuts. When I told him that my plans for my future and this is back when pro athletes did not make a ton of money because I'm old, uh, was I was going to be a pro football player and I was going to be an architect in the off season. <laughs> when I read that these guys still had to sell suits and stuff like that, Steve, I was like, eh, I'm not going to sell suits. I'm going to be an architect. By the way, two professions, uh, as it turns out, I would have been very bad at. Uh, but I had plans, right? I always had plans. But, uh, no, I always knew that I had some kind of ability to entertain in me. And, um, you know, for me, it, I have fallen so far from what the original vision was. I think as a kid, you know, I would watch, like, Dean Martin and the Gold Diggers, and I'd say, yeah, that's for me. I want to be Dean Martin. <laughs> and here I am writing comedy with a bunch of, dorks in cargo shorts until midnight every night it is so not that but um you know here i am i, I want i want you to tell me a little more you were in a you were in a really good time 
in the comedy scene in New York when you were yeah. doing stand up. Tell me more a little about that because you know I know so many people that came out of it. You know, and I'm like I'm, I'm good friends with Rich Scheidner, and he was a, before, and I, I was a little after because I started comedy in in like '88. But you guys were in the New York scene. What was that like? Because I know it was you, like you, Scroven, the late Ken Ober. I mean, there's some great, great acts. Lou DiMaggio. You know, I know all those guys. In fact, I just saw Lou uh, about three weeks ago, and I reminded him of that great joke of his about when his father told him the facts of life, which I won't do justice to, but it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, but, you know, Steve, I never really did the club scene as a comic. My background is weird. I know that whole generation through my time at the Comedy Channel and through my world after my career changed there. I trained to be an actor. I'm a classically trained actor. I did regional theater. I did commercials. I did TV shows. For, you know, 10 years, I lived in New York City and just starved. You know, I was like, I always say about my acting career, I was just good enough to get my heart broken constantly, you know. Um, just good enough to be in the game, but never, never got over. Um, so, but while I was doing that, I started writing for the National Lampoon, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, you know, if you can write comedy, this is a little bit like being a left-handed pitcher. Everybody needs one. It's really different than being a 24-year-old young thespian. No one needs another one of those. There are too many of us. So, um once I started writing comedy and entering that world, that's when I realized, oh, this is who I am. Okay, interesting. At least I was smart enough to listen. So um, that led me quickly to working for uh, Alan Havey's show on Comedy Channel, nay, Comedy Central. And I was there for about four years doing Sports Monster and Night After Night and everything. And, and all of a sudden, I'm doing on camera i'm writing i'm you know i did a little live stuff during that time but really i was working on tv shows uh, strip shows you know all week long every week and having the time of my life it was almost a collegiate experience at the studio we had down at 23rd street in manhattan met my wife robin there met some of the best friends of my life uh, the higgins boys and gruber eddie gordetsky i mean important people in my life steve higgins was our best man when we got married you know that's that's my college, really. And from there, that's when Dennis Miller saw me, and he plucked me, and that's how I got to L.A. I was his sidekick on his original talk show, um, and a writer there, and then I'm in L.A., and you know, and all of a sudden my career became writing and performing on sketch and late-night shows. And that was a solid, gosh... You know, seven or eight years of my life. The first time I took a, a, a job on a half-hour sitcom, I cried um, because I knew I had to do it. I knew it was what I needed to do to provide. It, the time had come. My whole career, I had I was running from it like Indiana Jones with that boulder. You know, I was like, no, I can't do, I don't want this to be, you know, I still had Dean Martin in my soul, brother, you know, <laughs> what was... back then I had nice suits, I had plans, and that boulder just crushed me, and there I am writing these fucking half hours, I couldn't believe what, it. What was your first show you wrote on the half hour? Uh, just to make it extra sexy, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. <laughs> now, now, okay, so, so uh... what is that like for a writer? As you said, you come from, you know, 
that I mean, that is smell you're writing when you're. I, I'm, I'm guessing. I don't know in this first year, but I guess I guess the late Rooney was on your staff. Regi, I'm guessing. I can he imagine was, he was. The, the staff was ridiculous. It was Murderers Row. It was Mark Brazil, Drake Sather, Norm McDonald, Regi. Uh, I mean, Rooney was our head writer. I mean, I can go on. I'm forgetting guys. Eddie Feldman, um, Dugan, Stephen Leo. Ridiculous. So, what is it like when you go? And it's seriously when you go from that, and you know, that's just that. I mean, just Rooney can write something. All these other guys just added stuff. I mean, Rooney was brilliant. But what is that yeah. like when you go from that to then you're going to a writer's room on a show like Sabrina the Teenage Witch? And I'm sure it's well, a different... it wasn't that fast, Steve. It wasn't that fast. I went from there. I did a year on in Living Color. I'm writing, I'm on camera, I'm doing the Dirty Dozen sketches. It was still, I'm still making it work. Then I got a show called GTV, Carsey Warner. But what is it like, though? Point of view sketch show. Oh, down the road when you get in, riding. you get into a it room was, like it, that. You know what? Here's what it was. It was, you know, it was, um, you know, <laughs> I, I went there thinking two things. One, well, it was fun. And now I'm, you know, basically an accountant, you know. Um, but I was also very relieved, as you always are, to have work. I never, ever resented the fact that I was working and providing. And there are times in your life where that has to be the alpha, the, the, the prime objective, right? And then, as it turns out, and, you know, you can never handicap anything, football or life, um, it was a wonderful job. You know, I turn, turns out the job goes seven years. I'm the voice of the talking cat. There happened to be some wonderful writers there in the first four seasons who I learned a lot from. I learned a lot about how to write a half hour. We make a good show. The show used to get two year pickups. I actually, you know, it let me have a life. It let, you know, my dad, passed away i could buy my mama house i mean you know so many good things came out of that gig i took with my nose in the air and it just shows you that you think you know things and you you, you never know anything um and you know and from there i end up on king of queens and there i end up writing movies with got me you know uh, so it just you know my attitude was useless you know, uh, but, you know, there was a little bit of a death of identity going into it. You know, we're all allowed that, especially when you're younger. Although, you know, like I was a kid, you know, everything in my life has kickstarted later than the average bear, you know. So, but, you know, I, I, I look back on it with, again, a lot of gratitude. But, man, Steve, I went in there with uh, with a lot, a lot, a lot of, a lot of confusion. Um, but you know, the one thing I'll give myself some credit for is, um, I can get off my high horse fast. And if I'm around something that has a real decent reason for being, and I'm around talented, good people, um, what more can you ask for? And for, for you also, you know, King of Queen, you, you were on all shows that you pretty much knew they were going to get picked up again. You've been on hits. I mean, you know, you look at your, your, just your, yeah. your show. I mean, that must be great too. Then going into, you know, mom's a hit. So, you know, you, you know, when you're writing that you're going to have another year of work. I mean, as a writer, that must be great because there's so many shows that don't get picked up, but for you, is there that, is that sense, a little sense of, is the sense of security comforting because you sit there, 
like after season two of Mom, when they're getting great ratings, you know you're going to have a three, and you probably know you're going to have a four because it's CBS. What is that like? Does that just put an ease to you because you're not like, holy shit, you know, I, I have bills, and if the show gets canceled, yeah. I'm fucked. Oh, God, yeah. No, I mean, it's that's something that, uh, and, you know, that gets more meaningful every minute you, you're alive. <laughs> you know, and if you are bold enough, to have a family. Um, and you know, I really, it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of my arc as a man has been, uh, letting go of the, my, my, the needs of my identity. And and I look back at the narcissism of my twenties and it's, it's just kind of horror. It's horrifying. It's embarrassing. You know, I think it was the mission then. I don't know, but, um, where I am for many years now is the thing that I take away from my work is, um, you know, the, the most important thing about it is um, the pride I take in being able to take good care of the people I love. Um, and also to be the kind of person in the workplace that takes good care of the people around me there, too. And that's, you know, that that's the stuff that lets you sleep at night, much more so than when... Uh, you're young and you're on something that you know isn't working and you're a terrified like well this is the one they're going to come in the night and kick me out of showbiz you know everyone is so afraid that 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 fraud that you know imposter syndrome but the other thing is that um, (laughs) you really feel like everything you do has to be perfect and has to represent you so perfectly and completely or your tortured soul. Um, I don't miss any of that, Steve. I got to ask you, you know, you just brought up imposter syndrome and I just interviewed Michael Boatman, who's been on a ton of TV shows, you know, Spin City. Oh yeah. And he said, yeah. you know, until he was 40, he felt like he has an imposter syndrome. What is it with creative people that we think, even, <laughs> even Paul Ben Victor said when he was on the wire, he said, uh, because I thought they cast the wrong person. I didn't think I, sh- yeah. you know, I. What do you think it is that gives us the creative type? Because we all have it. You just mentioned it right then. You're being successful. Why do you think we have that imposter syndrome? Is it because our creativity comes from insecurity, or what do you think it is? Um, you know, I, I don't think it ever goes away entirely. You just learn how to manage it, like all conditions in life. You know, your first mistake probably is to think, "I'll be over this someday." <laughs> you won't. You just Learn how to roll with it. Um, you know, at this point in time, I, I, I think of it as now I've tried to make friends with it. I think it's a component of integrity. I think that if you lose a little bit of that, you know, I see it in people of huge accomplishment um, still have that. I see it in them. Um, that worry of like, this is the one I got found out. This is the one. People who they're beyond being found out. And if I see that in them, um, I used to look at it and think, well, isn't that sad? They're all, they're made man and they're still Frank, you know, and now I look at it and go, that's great. Still in it to win it. You know, it's an essential component and you shouldn't resent it. You should go good. I care. Now, what was going through your mind during the strike? Cause you're involved in both strikes. You're the writer. And then we always think, okay, so when the writers get off strike, they can start yeah. crafting the series. But then, 
they craft so much and there's still no actors. I mean, I, I've, I've only talked to actors about the strike. Tell me what it goes to, because you guys settled first, but, you know, do you worry or are you, do you, do you sit there and go, you know it's going to be solved, but do you sit there and go in your head, well, what if this doesn't go for a year? What, what am I going to do? Yeah, no, everybody went through that. You know, nobody, I don't think anybody anticipated that they were going to go as long as they did. And we settled first, but we were out longer. You know, the writers really were the, uh, we were the snowplow. And and if the actors hadn't gone out, I think we would have been effed hard. You know, the fact that SAG after joined in was enormously helpful. Um you know, it's we're at a weird tipping point, the businesses. You know, I have my own theories, but, you know, um, I do believe a lot of this stuff is way above my pay grade. I really do. Um, but I'm not so sure it's not above the pay grade of a lot of people who are in those chairs. Um, it always made me laugh. You know, we struck hard about the fear of writers being replaced by AI. And, you know, I've read AI-generated stuff. And I have no doubt it is a matter of moments before it writes well. But I'll tell you this, the people who are so panting to have it replace me, should they're the ones that should be really careful. Because I know AI can do a better job at what they do right now. Because these companies, a lot of the decision making, it's typical showbiz, you know. Um, and this is time, I've been around the planet long enough, I've seen this my whole life. That record company just had a hit with a song called The Twist. We got to put out 400 records about The Twist. It doesn't work that way, you know? Um, everybody watched Netflix and watched streaming and went, Ack! Oh, my God, we got to stream now. We got to stream now. We don't understand it, but we're jumping in. And now they're all going, what were we doing? And what were we doing making all these shows where every episode had you know a dystopian in, in, you know i was in for years the writer like i can't create a new world for you i can write about buffalo right buffalo is not in vogue you need a dystopian world where lizards and humans are bred and i'm like fuck off i can't do that and i don't want to watch that you know and those episodes all cost 100 million a piece well here you are you know, here you are. And now they're all going, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, we've got all these massive concept shows that we can't really say helped our bottom line. Um, but we just thought we've got to get into the Game of Thrones business. we got to get into the Netflix business. we got to get they, – it's working for them. We can't look stupid. we got to do it. Um, <clears throat> but I, my theory about show business is always, you know, there are periods of time where it hits a hard surface – and turns into a thousand little tiny scattered balls, but they all reconvene. They all turn into one glommed ball again. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to end up with three or four networks, for lack of a better word. I don't think you can sustain networks and streamers and this is and blorp and fling and ding dong. And, you know, it's like it's going to be four companies you know they'll all be they'll all have they'll have the same name on every platform um i do think austerity is going to be back in vogue but the, i don't know man i think everybody's i don't think anybody knows what's going on and i think next year is going to be scary weird well you know i, I think you're right and it's funny because right now we're in new jersey marijuana has become legalized now right near where i live yeah. 
there's yeah. going to be three dispensaries a mile within each other. And for me, it's like, they, they can't all do business. It's like the streamers. You sit there and you go, I want to watch this show. Then you go, well, wait, there's this show. And there's so many damn shows, you, you, you don't know what to watch. So the his, the following of the future, what's the future of you, Nick? What, okay, Bookie's done. Now, have you gotten a yeah. word about a second season yet, or do we not know? Or No, we haven't heard a thing. You know, it, we're in the confluence of, A, it's the holidays-ish almost now, and nothing happens until the new year, you know. Um, and I think they'll, you know, and, and also the streaming model is pretty cagey. Um, we have no indicators um, they don't really deal you in. At least we haven't been dealt in yet. I've gotten great feedback on it. I know people are watching it. But what they want and what we want, I don't even know, Steve. It's not like old days where you go, well, we were the number 12 show. I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> you know, but, 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 but one upside you also have is, you know, Sebastian is constantly on the road. Yeah. So that sister yeah. and brings a whole new audience and as I said, I we didn't know what to expect because I really didn't see any previews of it. It's not like, you know, I'm, I, we all have all the channels, but I don't only watch. But I said, you know, I heard you were involved with it and it just it looked good. And I said, you know, and that's the thing. I think the one positive side going is Sebastian, comedy wise, is a household name. You know, you wouldn't think about yeah. people who I never knew even went to comedy clubs. Go, oh, do you, do you know Sebastian Maniscalco? And I go, I know, but that must be a great benefit for you guys. Oh, I think he's a huge asset, obviously. I agree, you know, and um, he's was so tremendously good in the show. Um, you know, listen, I believe in the show. I believe it's delivered. I think it's funny. I know, you know, and what's interesting, the one thing I did hear is that we have like uh, almost a 50-50 split of men and women watching it. You said the same thing. You and your wife watch it together. That's interesting. It makes me very happy. It doesn't surprise me in terms of what the content is, but again, you know, in a world of a thousand menu items, I'm glad that's happening. Um, you know, I just hope they keep getting the word out. I'm happy to do you anything I can do to get the word out on the show because it is really fun. I do think it's worth everybody's attention, and I really hope we get to do more because you know, things that click like this does. It doesn't grow on trees, and it's not to be taken for granted. Now, do you have any other shows you're going to be working on soon? I'm, you know, between this and launching, and I'm uh, working on the final season of Young Sheldon as we speak. Um, and now I'm, you know, I'm always cooking some things up in development. But those are my headlines. Right, well, I want to thank you, Nick. How can people find out more about you? How can they get in touch with you? How can they find out more about Bookie? Well, you can always check me out on, um, you know, I'm so bad with the social media, on Facebook, on X. I am uh, at Nick Bakai number four real, Nick Bakai for real. Um, and I'm on Insta. Um, and uh, I don't even know what the hell I'm called on Insta. Let me look. Hey, welcome to old guy. Uh, I don't know. Well, just Nick search Bakai. Nick Bakai. You can find it. There you so, go. So people You'll find me. Seriously. If there's another one, I feel sorry for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So people, <laughs> seriously, go check out Bookie. Seriously, it's worth it. Uh, go look up Nick on IG. Dreaming on Max. We drop on Thursdays. Get on board. It's awesome. Get on board. It's a great show. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800, uh, 990 episodes. I'm sorry. Uh, you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram, I'm at Cooper Talk One. 
Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.